<laughs> you know, if you asked um, a bunch of people what they thought our main needs are as humans, I'm sure you'd get a lot of the same responses. We need food, we need water, we need air, and beyond that, we need companionship, we need purpose and all this. And, and those are true, but there's something that I think we all need that probably may not come immediately to mind. We all need assurance, or we all need to be reassured. I remember when I was eight years old, and we had uh, moved to a new house in Durango, Colorado. And uh, this was a house that was quite a bit different. There were a lot of creaky noises in this house. And I got into this habit where every night, my eight-year-old imagination would start going wild, and I would be convinced that there was a burglar creaking around in the house. And so I would get out of bed every night with a flashlight, going to look and make sure everything was okay. Because I wanted the assurance that I was safe, you know. And of course, eventually my siblings and my parents found out what I was doing, and uh, my siblings laughed at me, and my mom and dad reassured me. And the reason is because my siblings were jerks. And uh, and my mom loved me, so she gave me that reassurance, right? We all need that. We need that still. We need that as adults. And not just in the small things. When I'm going on a hiking trip, I, I take out that map, where nowadays it's on the phone usually, and I, I check it every so often just to reassure myself I'm going in the right way. You know, that is one of the needs we have as Christians and maybe we don't think about it enough, but we need to be assured. We need the reassurance from God that he is in control, that we're on the right track with him, that everything is okay. Now, you know how I know we need that? Well, number one, because I need that, and I guess I'm a fairly typical Christian. And number two, because when John comes to the end of this book, that's pretty much all he does. This whole last section is reassuring believers, the believers he was writing to, and by extension us, of these same things. So this whole section is a word of reassurance to us. And the Holy Spirit would not have given this to you and I if we did not need this. So as we come to this passage that uh, Lynette just read, let's ask God to open our eyes to what we need to learn from this. Father, I, I pray exactly that. I thank you that you have given us your word and you have given us many wonderful ways to interact with it. And we thank you that we come to a time that you, like a good Good Father, give us that reassurance. Lord, we love you. We desire right now to place ourselves under your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide these words of mine so that I say things that are true, and also that you guide us in our understanding. So we understand not only intellectually what the sermon is about, but that how you desire for us individually to respond. Thank you, Father. Amen. You know. All right. So this is a word of reassurance. And as we go through this, this is going to be our almost last uh, sermon in the book of First John. We'll come to that last part, that caveat here in just a, in a few minutes. There are, I see in this passage, four assurances that God wants to give you today and to me. Uh, so there's four things that God wants to reassure us of. And he begins this by telling us, this is his goal here, in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. And it comes back to that word know again and again. You'll see it in this, in this passage. And he ends with three great we know declarations. And re you remember that this was written in the context of uh, a group who were, had been in the church. So he's writing this church in what we today call Turkey. And, uh, and this, there had been a large group of people who had left the church because they had found this better teaching. And it was an early form of what was called Gnosticism. And it's based on the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, because the, the heart of that was that you are saved by this special understanding. And you got the special understanding by these secret teachings, which, by the way, we will tell you about, and by these special experiences. And so Jesus fit into this, but he fit in as one of these teachers of the secret knowledge, not as the Son of God who came and died for our sins. And so one of the things that's happening here, and you see this in, in a... In chapter 3, he talks about, I'm writing to about those who have left. We have to keep that background in mind. He wants to reassure them, look, those guys have left. They claim to have had the true Jesus and the true understanding. They're missing it completely. I want you to know that you have eternal life because you have placed your trust in the name of Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. Now, that is a word of reassurance for you and I, then, if we have done the same thing. We've talked before that phrase eternal life more literally is the life of the age to come. So the idea is this, that it's not that we have this life just extended uh, infinite duration in time. No, it's more of a qualitative than a quantitative thing. It's a different kind of life, a new birth into a new kind of life. The illustration we used last week was um, of a caterpillar going into it, trans, transfiguring into a moth. And, uh, and that's the idea. So there is a new life that God is giving us in Jesus. And the first thing he wants to show us is, look, this has all come through Jesus. It's by faith. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to be anything else. God makes it as a gift to you, and you have that. Now, one of the things we see, if we look at passages in the rest of Scripture, is that this life, is very much different than this one. In fact, so much so that our real hope are, uh, is, is kind of like this inheritance of this kind of life that will be before us. And again, in Scripture, hope doesn't mean something that may or may not happen, but I really want to. It means something that will happen, but it's not happened yet. So this kind of salvation, this kind of life, we have a we participate in it now, but the reality of that is still to come. It's in the future. It's, as 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1 talks about here, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So God is guarding this for you. You have this inheritance. You don't experience it yet. And I think he wants, the, the writer wants to, to let us know this life is not as good as it gets, right? There's something more, and that is what I want to assure you that you have. And again, the illustration we used, he's not just talking about a caterpillar kind of life and just that doesn't end. He's talking about a new kind of life arising from, but entirely different than the way that first life worked. All right, so that's the first thing. And we'll come back to kind of applying that here in a few minutes. The second thing that he wants to assure us of is that he hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 
So this is the promise he wants to assure you of. You have this new life in Christ, and part of this package deal, although you don't really receive the full inheritance until afterwards, after this life is over, but even right now we have the assurance that God hears, responds favorably to our prayers. So the idea of hearing, as he makes very explicit, is not just, okay, he, he's cognitively aware of them, but rather he responds he, in, a, in a favorable way. Now, how does that work? <laughs> because you and I both know, right, that we've prayed a lot of things that have not been answered. I had one just yesterday. It really annoyed me that God did not answer this prayer the way I want. In fact, he, it turned out just exactly opposite the way I wanted. Um, I won't go into the details. It's not important. But uh, it will cost some money to, to fix. And uh, car situation. Anyway. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, God, I was just praying for this. I thought this was, you know, be a good blessing. And it turned out exactly opposite. It's going to cost a lot of money. What, what's going on? Well, couple things. First of all, we're reminded here that this promise is when we are praying in line with his will. They're like, oh, okay, that's the catch. So I have to pray what he's going to do anyway, right? Well, not exactly. Not exactly. Because when you look at how that phrase, the will of God or his will is used, it's not a detailed blueprint. It's a goal or a purpose that's usually in mind. Think of it like this. Say that a uh, so that Amy and I want to build a house like we just, you know, were able to do not too long ago. And uh, we're going to build a custom home this time, though. So what, what can we do? Well, we could, if we wanted to, go out there and hire a general contractor, tell them exactly which subcontractors to hire, tell the subcontractors which employees to hire, tell them exactly where to buy their supplies all the way from electrical wire to the nails to the two-by-fours. Tell them exactly when to do everything that they're going to do. Watch over each step. Tell them exactly how I want everything done in a sequential order by every person involved. Well, okay, that would be building it according to our will, right? Uh, it'd be stupid to do it that way. Um, but what if instead we, we met with this custom builder and we said, this is what we want for our house. This is how many bedrooms. We really want a, a nice bedroom on the first floor because, you know, we're getting older, so maybe we don't want to climb the stairs. We want, you know, a nice front patio or, or a back porch. We want, this is what we envision our house for, you know. And then we allow him to have the agency to go out and make that goal a reality. Isn't that much more in line with how we see the phrase, his will used in the New Testament? So this is not a limiting thing, really. I believe that we are actually, you know, God's not interested in making us robots. It's not that our will is subsumed and identical to his. It's rather that in line with his broad purpose, he gives us this ability to be sub-creators, to, to have this autonomy. And, and that's a beautiful thing. So when we're told to pray in line with his will, that is the idea that his goals and purpose, as, as already being done in heaven, increasingly become about on this earth, and I'm a part of that. Now, within that, then, my prayers are going to be heard by God when I'm praying in line with his goals or purpose and values, and he's going to hear those and, and respond favorably to that. That is the promise. That's a wonderful promise. It's a great promise because sometimes we don't ask for what's good for us, right? I remember when uh, Joe was five years old, he asked for a flamethrower for Christmas, and we did not get him a flamethrower when he was five years old. He had to wait until he was eight. Um, 
No, some, some, he has greater wisdom. Some things he just knows are not good for us. But other things that are good for us and maybe in line with his will, but the way he's going to work those out is going to be a little bit different than we might expect. There was a, found a soldier's prayer by, quote, an anonymous Confederate soldier in the U.S. Civil War. And it was, he wrote this, I asked God for strength that I, might, that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. That's a beautiful attitude and very, very much what happens in our, in our life. God is able to sift through the desires that he sees when we pray in line with his will and with a greater understanding in his own time, in his own way, he responds favorably to that. We may not always see that, but John says this is the assurance that we have in him. Third thing, I want you to be assured that you have eternal life, the life of the age to come. It's within you right now. Um, I want you to be assured that you have a father who hears you and cares about your, your desires. Oh, I almost get ahead of myself. By the way, that prayer includes praying for other believers. If any of you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and then God will give him life. And then it goes on this digression about a sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, this is the only time this phrase is used in the New Testament. So you're like, okay, I'm coming upon this. How do I interpret this? And this is just a good reminder. The best way to interpret a phrase when you don't know what it means is to look in the circle of context. And so I want you to picture concentric circles. So circles around each other. And in the center is this little phrase, in this case, the one we're looking at, uh, a sin that leads to death. So that first circle around there would be the immediate context. How does they use the, the idea of life and death in the immediate context? And then the, the second circle around that would be the whole book of 1 John. The third circle would be the whole writings of John, because each New Testament writer expresses things a little bit differently sometimes. And then fourth would be the whole New Testament, and beyond that, the whole Scripture because it's going to be in line with that, right? So the idea is that the, the circles are more influential the, the closer they are into this passage. And, and in here, we see, right before this, in, in verse 12, um, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does, does not have the Son of God does not have life. So he's talking about eternal life and death. And indeed, every time you see in the gospel or in the letter of 1 John, him talking about life and death, it is not our physical death he's talking about, but our spiritual death. And that's in line with most of the usage in his gospel. So he's talking about not a sin that if we do this, God is going to send a lightning bolt, bam, you know, no more Dan, okay? He, he, he went over the line on that one, he's gone. That's not what's happening here. The idea is that there is a certain type or category of sin that leads to spiritual death. And there are other sins that don't because they are part of what's covered under the blood of Christ for believers. So what is that? Well, in the context of, of this book, 
It's those who refuse to believe and accept that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and has come to be the Savior for their sin. So he's talked about that several places, at least three, about Jesus being the one that we need to put our faith and our trust in. And as he says, whoever has this son in this way has life. Whoever doesn't does not have life. So that is the idea, I believe, very, I think pretty confidently, that the sin he's talking about is a deliberate rejection of God and God's way of salvation through Jesus. Now, he says, I don't, I don't say you need to pray for those. He doesn't say you can't. But his point is that I want you to know your prayer for believers is always heard and brings life. And I'm not making that guarantee about the prayer for those who are not believers. Go ahead and pray for them. But that's not what I have in mind right here. I want you to know, he says, that when you pray for a believer in this way, God gives life. That's a wonderful promise. And how rarely, compared to what we should, do we take advantage of it, right? How often have we prayed for someone who's a believer and we don't see things change? And we may get discouraged and quit praying. But this is the promise. And we have to remember that he's seeing life in a much larger and longer picture than we are. His promise is that when you pray for another believer in this way, when you pray for their spiritual health and that they turn from a sin or grow in maturity, God actually responds to that. The way he does, the time he does, totally up to him. But this is the promise. Our prayers are incredibly effective in all the ways that matter. Third, okay, it says, I want you to be reassured that you are also, that you are safe, that you are safe. Now, the way he starts this is a little bit odd to us. We know, uh, verse 18, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, Jesus, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. All right, so again, let's interpret this in light of the book. The situation of the book is those teachers were leading people astray, and one of the marks of those people was, again, salvation is by knowledge, and so what you do with your body, what you do with sin, that really doesn't matter. You can go on living a life of sin because what matters is the knowledge that you get in your head, the secret special knowledge that we have. And that's why he goes off on these people. If, if anyone continues in that kind of sin, deliberately rejecting the kind of lifestyle God wants, you can be sure that they're not God's and they're not born of God. Now, he doesn't mean here, if we took this out of context and this was the only thing we ever taught about this or had, we, we might say, okay, anytime we sing, we show we're not a Christian. But he doesn't mean that. I know that because in the same book of 1 John, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So putting those two and two together, I think what he means is, is fairly clear, that if we have a lifestyle and make a deliberate choice that we're going to live however the blank that we want, that probably means we're really not born of God. But those born of God, even though our desire will be more and more to grow in righteousness and holiness and love, we're going to fail and we come to Jesus for forgiveness. And that's the difference. So he wants to, to show us that we're protected from sin be, because there's already this dynamic going on. 
But then he says, the one born of God, and he means Jesus here, keeps them, keeps us safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are the children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So the idea here is, is this. There is a, a pervasive evil in this world, a moral evil, but it's also much more than just a moral evil. There, there is a, a, a physical evil. Um, this world is not what it should be. And the, the promise is not that we will not suffer, not that we will not be tempted, but when God looks at the overall purpose, he is able to rescue those who are his from all the plans and snares of the evil one. In fact, we know he will even use them for good. So this is the promise that our destiny is that we will be transformed into a new kind of creature with a new kind of life. And even now we see that because there's a part of us that wants to please him. There's a part of us that wants to be like him, to turn our back on the ways of the world. And that's who you are. You are in him and protected by him. And then fourth, this is kind of, kind of summarize some of these. It says, I want you to be assured that you have a real relationship with him. A real relationship with him. The last verse there, verses. We also know, see again, he's talking about we know, we know, we know. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God. And eternal life. What does it mean to have a relationship with God? Well, I, I so I was thinking through this. It seems to me at least means at least four things. One is knowledge that he points out here. We have a knowledge of him. Now, this isn't a knowledge about him, but knowing him. Uh, I know things about President Biden. Can't say I know him because I've never met the man. So there's a difference between knowing and uh, knowing about and knowing. I know my wife in a much different way, of course, because we have that relationship and she knows me. So that's what he's involved in. There's this mutual knowing of each other as we know God. Now, we are reminded in Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians 13, that now we know in part, right? But then we will know face to face. Isn't that great? The, this this life, in my relationship with God right now, this isn't my destiny. This is a foretaste. It's, I know a little bit. There's a, there's a shadowy type of knowing it's real, but it's not anything like it will be. But there will be a time. In 1 John 3, 1, or 3, 3 says the same thing, when we will see him face to face. And not only is there a, a knowledge, but there is within that a union. Did you see how we put that? We know that him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. In. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about how 160 times in the New Testament, we are described as being in Christ. And that is where all the blessings of God flow through us because of our position within him. One simple way to think of this, this isn't exhaust the idea, but I've got my page of notes here, and I put this in this Bible. And you know what? 
whatever, wherever I take this Bible is where I take that, that page as well. And so in the same way, we are in Christ in the sense that now God sees us in this relationship with Christ and in this new humanity of Christ, and he treats us, loves us in the same way that he does Jesus Christ. That is an amazing thought, this union that we have with him. And this is a union of love. It's not just a business partnership. It's a union of love, again, as a man and a woman. And that's why Ephesians 5, that's, that's the best metaphor, he says, of ultimately what this is all about, a marriage union. There's a union. It's a union of love. And then lastly, it's a, it's a partnership. So it's a partnership. We will reign with Christ. What does that mean? Don't know exactly. But I think the best way to think of this is to go back to God's original creation of the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. And remember, the whole earth was not Eden because they got kicked out of Eden, all right? But they're still on the earth. The whole earth is not Eden. The idea was that Eden is what this world should be. They were in charge of keeping this, but also as they learned God's ways, I think of extending this, making the world like this. So in the same way, you and I will be individual partners with God using the ways that he has gifted us and the things we value in our own experiences to be a unique partner with him in remaking this world into his perfection. That is a beautiful thought. So God wants to assure us that you have that kind of relationship. You're not just someone that God saves from the pit of hell and it says, okay, now I'm going to let you live in a mansion forever in heaven. That's not what this life is about. The heart of this new life is this union of love and partnership with God, knowing him and being known, sharing his great work. That is, that is what he is going for here. That is his will. That is the heart of this new life. All right. How should we respond to this? How should we respond? I want to give us a couple of things. Let's see. And, and these are all centered around one idea. And that idea is that we have everything we need already. And we may not utilize everything we have, but God has blessed us with everything already. It's, or, it's a done deal. And we see that, for example, in Second Peter. His divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. And this is, again, in the past tense. He's already given it to us. Ephesians uh, chapter 1. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You do not need another spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, you may need to appropriate what is already given. And that's very much true. But you have everything in Christ. God does not do things by half measures. God does not love you by half measures. What he is, he does perfectly and completely. And when he places his love upon you, he does that infinitely and perfectly because he is an infinite and perfect God. And it flows out of him. It's not about whether we've achieved it this week or whether we deserve it. This is his nature. And as part of that, he has given you everything you need. Now, some of our experiences of that may be in the future, yes. Um, you can imagine if a large estate was left to a child of five years old. All right, legally, they've got it. It can't be taken away. But maybe, just maybe, they're going to you know, say, okay, he can take possession of this when he or she reaches 18 or 21, right? So in the same way, there are some things we already have, but we're not going to experience it. 
but God has given you everything that you need. So what do we do? Well, in this new life, first of all, we, I put it this way, look for signs of the new life. Look for signs of the new life. I remember when um, Amy was pregnant, and uh, what, a, what an incredible thing to see a child growing within you or, or within the woman that you love. And uh, it was so cool the first time she felt movement, you know, felt a kick or, or a roll or movement, you know, damn, put your hand here, you know, so you can feel this. And, and you know, previously we knew she was pregnant, okay. Uh, we had that knowledge, the doctors told us that, we saw the ultrasound and everything else. Uh, we saw the pregnancy test. Um, but this was like proof of life in a new and living way. You know, I think John was telling us in all this. He, he goes over and over again that we need to have this kind of, of love and righteousness because these are, are what this life is about. He's not saying that unless you get a certain level of love and righteousness, you don't have this new life. He's saying that when you have this new life, you're going to begin to experience this inside you. It's almost like he's saying, when you feel any desire to grow in holiness, even right now as you're listening to this, or even as you listen to some song or hymn or, or whatever, when you feel any desire or do any act of love, giving to meet the needs of the other person, that is a sign of life within you. That is a sign that this new life is there. Yeah, it's not born yet. It's not complete, but it's there, and God will make it complete. So rejoice. Look for those signs of life and, and rejoice in that. Um, secondly, let the new life, this new life, shape your prayers and desires. Let this new life shape your prayers and desires. So we come back to this idea of prayer. When we understand what this new life is about, we want this. We want it deeply. It begins to change what we hope for, what we, what we value. It's almost like, you know, we had this Adam life previously, and yet we had this new life within us. We had this caterpillar life, but there's within that this promise of the butterfly life, right? And we begin to understand that the things that we should be focusing our prayers and our desires and our choices on are about this kind of life that we haven't really experienced yet, but we know is our eternal destiny. And we need that because we come into this world, we come into the Christian life usually praying prayers about our Adam life. Lord, how much you solve this problem? I want you to bring me, bring me this. Will you help me with this? Will you help me with this? And, and they're not bad. They're related to our health, the health of someone we love, our career, our finances, our reputation, you know, to solve interpersonal problems or, or, or issues. They're not bad, but they're not our eternal destiny. They're not the heart of who we are and what's going to be important to us. And so we, we learn to say, God, I want your will in this. And if it would be better for me to fail in this area, to learn humility and dependence, then let's do that. And we learn to begin to pray in that way. We let the new life shape our prayers and our desires. 
All right, third thing. Oh, before we go there, I like this quote from C.S. Lewis at this point. You know, he says, we're, we're far too easily pleased. Imagine, you know, a child in the slums, and he's offered a, a trip to the beach, but he's never experienced that, so he'd rather go out playing uh, in, in the mud in the street. And that's kind of the way that we are sometimes. We don't see what we're missing. We have to take it by faith. All right, last thing then. Relax and rejoice. You have nothing to fear, and you have everything that you need. You do not need to worry that you're not good enough. You're not. And that's the point of the gospel, right? God is not really interested in simply blessing you if you become the best version of yourself that you have in your mind. That's not what it's about. And we, if we have this idea that we have to fear our own failure, it's going to, to haunt us into a type of, a, a, of performance anxiety that we're, we're never going to get out of. Or we may feel fear, not necessarily what we do, but what other people might do, or the vagaries of circumstances. And what God wants us to tell us is, relax, I've got this. It may not look exactly how you want it to look or how you thought it would look, but it will be a better trip than you had planned. You have nothing to fear. I remember when we used to take our kids on, on vacation, you know, they were little. And uh, now and then one of them was kind of a worry wart there for, you know, stage of childhood. And, you know, they're worried about, we have enough gas. What, what about this happens? We're, and we're like... You know, this was Joe. So, dude, you know, relax, okay? We've got this covered. You know, you don't have to worry about these things. Don't you think that's what God wants to say to us sometimes? Dude, do that. Relax. I've got this covered. I didn't die on the cross so that your life becomes miserable. All right, I've got bigger plans you understand. You may not like part of them at the moment, but trust me on this. I got this. And we can live... We can relax and rejoice because, again, you have everything you need. We may need to preach this to ourselves a few times. We may need to remind ourselves to declare through some of the psalms or through a hymn or, or whatever, I do have everything I need. I don't need a better car, a better house, a better promotion, better health, better relationships, um, better grades. Not to say those things are bad. I shouldn't work for them. I don't need them. I don't need any more security. I don't need anything other than what God's already given me. It's already in my hands. I can relax and rejoice and live in the fullness and freedom that that offers. William Randolph Hearst was, a, of course, a, one of the very wealthy men uh, in this country 100 years ago or so. He was a bit of an art collector. He liked, he liked to collect art, and if you got the money for it, why not, right? So he read in a, in a newspaper just a paragraph referring to some, some really intriguing work of art. And so he wrote down the, the name and the artist, and he told his, one of his agents, I don't care what it costs, I want you to find this and buy it. Well, this was before the Internet age, obviously. So this was a bit of a challenge, hunting this thing down. Finally, after months, um, the agent comes back and says, 
Good news, we found it. It's in one of your warehouses packed away. <laughs> it was in its possession all the time. And that, that's us sometimes. We have everything we need. We don't need to pray that God brings other things, more that we receive and rejoice in what he has given us. This is the way to freedom. This is the way that God wants us to live. One last illustration. Um, many of you, some of you have been out in the Golden Gate Bridge in, in California, a few of you. No, not too many. All right, it's big. It's really high. And uh, obviously, if you fall from that thing, uh, you're going... You, uh, I, I think the uh, the kids call it yeed and delete now. Um, so anyway, that's what they're told. Anyway, you don't want to fall from this height. You're going to die. And when it was in construction, there was no safety net originally. And, uh, and they found, they didn't have many people fall off and die, but they found the work was going incredibly slow, much slower than they planned or scheduled for. So what they did was they put a safety net all the way underneath that, and they found that a few people, a few men working on that did fall safely into the net. But the other thing that they found was that the productivity and speed tripled. Why? Because they knew that they were safe. And they were able to do more and act more freely in that knowledge. You are safe. You have everything you need. There is no ultimate harm that will come to you. You are safe. Relax. And serve this one with great joy.